and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast, where we focus on POCUS. Here, we will discuss all things related to Point of Care Ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. James Day recording live from the Focus on Pocus studios outside the metropolis of Philadelphia on a rainy day today. Today we have our interesting guest. Her name is Kathleen Ogle, MD. She is our honored guest today and Dr. Ogle is a board certified emergency medicine physician and currently practices at George Washington University Hospital in Washington, VA Medical Center and United Medical Center. She began her career with seven years as a registered nurse, six of which were spent as critical care RN. She then pursued her medical degree, attended the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, and stayed on to complete her residency training in emergency medicine, as well as an emergency ultrasound fellowship. She's been on faculty since 2013. She is also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at George Washington School of Medicine and is actively engaged in all levels of medical education. She is the Emergency Ultrasound Fellowship Director and Chair of the Clinical Competency Committee for the Residency. She has fostered engagement with women faculty within her department and co-founded their professional development group, GW Emergency Medicine Females, or GWMFEM. Through this group, she encourages and inspires amplification and promotion of her female physician peers. She balances her academic responsibilities with her role as a single mother of a precocious first grader with whom she lives with in Virginia. Wow. How are you, Dr. Ogle? How are you today? I'm good, James. How are you? Well, we're doing good here. That's quite an impressive bio you have there. Very cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I really like, uh, you know... Doing the nurse to physician transition, you don't hear of that very often. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, we've had a couple of folks here at GW who have done the same thing, and I have to tell you, my transition from nurse to physician was was not um, not a surprise. I actually knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a physician. Mm-hmm. However, I'm the first in my family to go to college. And the only thing I knew at 18 was that medical school was really long and really expensive, (laughs) and I was responsible for paying for it. And I had the good fortune of having some loving grandparents who sort of sponsored me while I was going to junior college. And I thought long ago that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, And... (laughs) What I realized uh, after studying psychology for a bit and working with a neuropsychologist that was doing some traumatic brain injury research was that in order to be a psychiatrist, you had to go to medical school. And I thought, well, Hmm. why would I go to medical school, you know, to be a psychiatrist when I could just be a regular doctor? And nothing to say anything bad about psychiatrists because they're fantastic people. I just had a hard time sort of connecting uh, the, the medical component of that. And there happened to be a two-year associate degree RN program at my community college. And I applied and got in and became an RN and then moved to Vegas. And the rest of that part of the history is, is, is done. Wow. So you got into nursing to go get into showbiz in Vegas. Is that, is that how it went? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it just it's, Vegas was a was a good position or a good place to be because my mom lived in New Mexico and mm-hmm. my dad lived in California. And Vegas was a fun place to be, you know, when you're 21 years old, you want to be a little bit farther away from the parents, but still close enough to be able to go home on the weekends. Right. And so it, it seemed like a, a, a good place geographically. And um, so I did just med surge nursing for about a year, year and a half, went through and became charge nurse and code team leader and peer educator and ultimately always had more questions about why we were doing things and transitioned into the ICU. And I worked in a cardiothoracic ICU. Mm. So it was post-op um, coronary artery bypass and AAA repairs and, and various and sundry other things. And I was probably six months into my ICU stay. And there was an anesthesiologist who had come in to put in a Swan-Gans catheter. Mm-hmm. And I had studied the procedure so many times, you know, from the process of inserting the needle into the neck to put in the line that I I had everything laid out and was sort of anticipating his every move. And that was just the light bulb moment for me where I realized I want to be the one doing this stuff. I want to be the one doing the procedures. I want to be the one making the decisions. I want to be the one sort of guiding management and understanding the pathophysiology behind it. And I went to my boss the next morning Mm -hmm. and said, look, I have an associate degree. I need to get a bachelor's degree to get into medical school. And so I'd like to arrange my schedule in such a way that I have the weekdays free and the weekends for work. And so I worked Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights and went to school Monday through Friday for four years uh, to get my bachelor's in biology and then applied to medical school at GW and 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 various other medical schools, but GW was ultimately the one that I chose. You know, I really like the trajectory of nurse to physician. You're probably a much better physician going that route. It's like a Horatio Algiers uh, rags to riches story. I love it that you did it yourself. It's it's such a great story. Thank you. Yeah. Laying out the equipment and knowing, wow, I could be doing this. That's great. That's great you made those. And you wound up in such a great institution, too, on top of that and everything else. I do like it here at GW. What are some of the main challenges for uh, women in medicine today? What do you think? So there are, there are a multitude of, of challenges. I think you could, you could start at um, the simplest level of just being able to interact with patients and, and there are still a fair number of patients who believe you have to be male to be a physician. And um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've walked out of a room and heard a patient talk to their family member and say, I wonder when I'm going to see the doctor. <laughs> And, you know, I'm, I'm wearing a long white coat. I'm wearing my name tag, which says doctor on it in big red print. I introduce myself as doctor. And uh, so there, there are challenges in interactions with, with patients and sort of them feeling like they're actually seeing a physician and, you know, often be, being referred to as the nurse in the room. Um, and, and, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being referred to as a nurse in concept. I, I couldn't do my job without the incredible support of our nursing staff. 
However, when it comes to my ability to connect with a patient, to get their story, to garner their trust, to be able to develop that relationship, I need for them to, to understand that I'm actually their doctor, you know? And so I think that that was probably the first thing that I noticed when I transitioned from, from being a, a nurse to, to a physician. And, and one of the things that I think is a gender-related issue rather than um, specifically previously being a nurse. Sure. Um, I don't think I have yet, I've yet to find a male colleague who has been mistaken for the nurse or some other um, ancillary staff for support uh, in, in medicine. In, in care. I also think that there have been challenges, and this is pretty well documented in literature, and I think we're, we're doing a lot more work on it now, where women physicians are provided with task-based responsibilities as opposed to leadership-based responsibilities. Women are more likely to volunteer for those types of responsibilities. And, mm -hmm. and the specific thing that I'm talking about is, for example, in a meeting, you know, a faculty meeting, uh, if someone needs to take notes or if someone needs to get some coffee or someone needs to get some napkins, uh, I've yet to see a male colleague jump to the opportunity to, to do those things. Right. And it's certainly but no means due to a lack of capability. It just seems to be we have these roles which which come from how we grew up. Sure. They come from the environments that we that we grew up in, and you know some of it we're doing it to ourselves um, simply because it's what we're we're used to doing, and and some of it is also sort of an expectation of of our male colleagues. I think more more importantly, sort of what this goes on to is. Because female physicians are provided more task-oriented opportunities as opposed to leadership-oriented opportunities, the, the trajectory, particularly in academic medicine for women, is, uh, is stalled compared to their male colleagues. Um, there's also pretty good evidence to show that female physicians are paid at a lower rate than male physicians. And that's, that's controlled for training, it's controlled for years of experience, it's controlled for skill set, and we, we want to know why that is. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of theories out there, and there are some institutions which are, which are doing some exploration on this and trying to do some audits on salaries and audits on grant support and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is because we have we have developed this system which uh, tends to promote our male physicians more readily, there are fewer women leaders, fewer women mentors, you know, folks who we can go to to ask about their experiences. Now, it's not to say that my male mentors have not been fantastic because they absolutely have. I think the, the most interesting thing that I'm learning as I'm going through my academic career is I have to ask for specific types of guidance and support and 
um, professional development, that I'm not sure that my male colleagues have to ask for those same things. Um, some examples are just talking about kind of preparing for your academic portfolio for promotion. You know, I've recently come to know that it's, you know, I'm coming up on seven years as, as faculty, and this is about the time when people start to look for uh, opportunities for promotion. So you have to put this portfolio together. And there are a multitude of things in this portfolio that I just learned about just now wow. as I started putting this, these things together. And so, and part of that is certainly my responsibility. If I don't ask the questions, if I don't ask for the things that I need, well, who, who's going to be a mind reader? Who's going to just automatically give me what I need? I think the challenge is that some of our male colleagues are mentored differently and the conversations are different. There are assumptions that women physicians are more concerned about their families and they're more concerned about having time off and perhaps they may not be interested in academic or administrative or leadership positions because they might be more interested in doing other things. I think we need to change the conversation to really ask everybody what they want to do with their career and, and what are the steps that need to be taken to move things along, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I've, I've been in situations like that where, you know, I'm the sonographer and I'm like, uh, no, I'm not the doctor. She is with patients mm -hmm. and it's generational, it's cultural, it's, it's a lot of things. And, but we share a commonality, you know, like myself, I've never really had a mentor to point me down the road. Um, when I was young and deciding on a career. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of, as you say, you know, you went to it and you go, okay, I can do this. And I went to the local junior college and this, sort of did this, almost the same thing that you did, except mm -hmm. I didn't, I stopped mm -hmm. short of being a doctor because I was too old. <laughs> <laughs> You're never too old. You're uh, never too old. I don't know. <laughs> I was having too much fun and I was thinking about all those years of grueling books and everything. And uh, yeah. So, you know, I know you're a big POCUS user and you teach POCUS a lot. And so how has that uh, impacted your career? So it's really interesting. So when I started my emergency medicine residency, mm -hmm. your first month of emergency re medicine residency is sort of a warm-up, almost a boot camp, if you will, to sort of get your feet wet. And then the very next month, my first rotation was ultrasound. And that's mm -hmm. when I met you know, one of my most treasured mentors, Keith Boniface, he's very well known in the POCUS community and particularly in critical care ultrasound. And I was so amazed at sort of the power of this tool that I could take to the bedside of my patient to not only very quickly identify whether or not they had the specific pathology that, that they were concerned about, but also sort of the, the addition to the therapeutic relationship that that provided. It takes a little bit more time to do an ultrasound than it does to do just a general physical examination, but it somehow feels more personal. Like I'm someone who holds my patient's hands. I, you know, put my hand on their shoulder. And when I take the probe and I put the probe on the patient, it's another way of connecting with the patient. Yes. And particularly when you see anatomy, which is normal, 
you can provide a lot of reassurance to your patient. Like, look at this. Your, your lungs look normal. I'm not seeing anything on this ultrasound, which is concerning. So the discomfort that you're feeling in the chest, it's most certainly not anything that is dangerous or worrisome. And I think, you know, as an emergency physician, it has also been tremendously helpful with regard to triaging patients and uh, directing specific bedside treatments and therapies, and also really facilitating throughput. I mean, our, our emergency departments are completely overrun. And if you can move someone through more quickly with a bedside tool rather than waiting, you know, four hours for a comprehensive head-to-toe um, ultrasound and, and answer the question that you need to answer for that day, and then get that person tied into their primary care physician or a specialist as an outpatient, you can clear that ER for the people that are coming in with life-threatening illness. I think the other thing, too, is I've always been a teacher, and that's something that invigorates me. I love seeing the light bulb go on for people. And having ultrasound as an extra skill and an extra thing that I can teach has also been incredibly rewarding. And I, I really, I enjoy seeing not only the light bulb go off, but for my students, when that image changes from a Rorschach to actual anatomy, that's when you see their eyes light up and they're like, I do see the kidney. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's just such a great feeling. Yeah, that is, that is true. The more, the one-on-one -on -one relationship is increased, you know, um, and you can point and educate, you know, when things are good, definitely. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's so true, too. Uh, I think one of the other things that I love about it is we're integrating ultrasound now into medical school education. So we're getting it earlier and earlier, and it really helps those junior medical students who are still having a hard time kind of putting together why the heart works a certain way and why we talk about the physiology in a certain way. And when they can see it and hear it and read about it, it really sort of helps them connect the dots. It just provides a different avenue by which you can teach things. And I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's also a lot of fun. Yes. And if it's integrated in M1 and M2, uh, the the place where the institution where I was at, I taught it, mm -hmm. uh, and they, you know, I was teaching residents, and I was like, you know, it would be better if they had a base by the time they hit residency, we could move on to level two, level three style learning instead of how to hold the probe and what we're looking at. I totally agree with that. I think the other thing that is is interesting and challenging, however, sort of as a counter to that, is now we have folks leaving medical school with a foundation, and then they're running into uh, folks and faculty in their departments, you know, internal medicine, general mm -hmm. surgery, OBGYN, who don't have as much hands-on experience with the probe and so do not necessarily feel as comfortable providing guidance with that. And so one of the other things, and, and this is something that I've started doing more recently, is trying to integrate that education with faculty as well, and, and faculty in multiple different specialties. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about POCUS and what we do. Yeah, so let me ask you, so uh, that begs the question, what advice would you give to folks trying to implement uh, POCUS in their clinical practice? So that's a, that's a great question. 
I think the first thing that I would say is you have to find a way to get a foundation. And so take a course, take, you know, a CME course, go to, you know, your leadership in your institution and talk about it. Look at the literature, really sort of understand how this is, this is impacting care. I mean, we know that most folks outside of the U.S. are doing ultrasound first. That's the first imaging modality they're using. And we really should be doing the same thing to decrease radiation for our patients and to improve sort of time to treatment. I think the other thing is we have a responsibility to our learners, you know, as we're moving to, to this technology where it gets smaller and more portable and easier to use, we really should be taking that responsibility as lifelong learners to develop our skills, to grow as clinicians, to figure out better and, and more efficient ways to do things for our patients so that we can also provide some guidance and some leadership to our medical students and, and residents and PAs and NPs. Everyone is hungry for knowledge. Everyone wants to take better care of their patients. So this is really what we should be doing. You're right. Spot on with that. <clears throat> so what do you see on the horizon um, sort of combining POCUS and, and women in medicine? So I think one of the things that I have been ruminating about for years, really, since I was in fellowship, as I am one of those learners that's sort of in between the, the age of technology, like I remember growing up and having to look things up in books. You know, I remember <laughs> the Encyclopedia Britannica. And now I have all of these learners who are so technologically savvy. They're using apps for everything, and they're using the Internet for everything. And we've moved to the, this position now where you don't necessarily need to know everything. You just need to know how to find the answer. And so with that vein and with that uh, approach, particularly with our more junior learners, we have to be creative and we have to be thoughtful about how we're going to reach out to people. And I think that podcasts is one way, you know, free open access, medical education is another way. And so I'm trying to build my skills and, and develop in that area. And I think one of the things that you will find if you search through podcasts related to POCUS and podcasts related to ultrasound education in general, you will find a paucity of female educators in that internet um, location. And so what I would like to do to sort of blend my love for promoting and engaging women and, and developing scholarship and, and developing uh, academically is to create a, a movement for females in ultrasound. So, you know, there's Feminem, which is an um, emergency medicine uh, a group founded by Dara Cass in emergency medicine. Her entire sort of approach is trying to build gender equity and, and educate people on gender bias. I would like to create uh, fem in us, so fem in ultrasound, but it's also about being inclusive and being collaborative and really getting everybody on the same page, people that are not currently represented who are phenomenal educators. I want to get those people out there. I want to highlight those people. I want to celebrate those people and have them help them share what they have with the medical world. That's amazing. I, I like that. I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. And I understand we're going to be getting together and uh, playing around with the the butterfly, the new big toy that's out now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very excited about that. It's a, it's a 
quite a powerful little tool there. Well, Dr. Ogle, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here on today's show. Of course. Always a pleasure, always enlightening. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. It's great. It's been great stuff, uh, a nice, fresh angle. And uh, it's really incredible, a nurse to physician. I love it. Um, so I just want to say to the audience, we thank you guys for listening in. Don't forget to follow us for more POCUS Talk on Twitter at POCUS Academy and on Facebook at POCUS Cert Academy. So Kathleen Ogle, thank you. It was an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much, James. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, Focus on Pocus. Be sure to tune in with us next week for more interviews with thought leaders that are on the forefront of global point-of-care ultrasound. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intelios. This podcast is for information purposes only.